This is Innovating a Bright Future. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwalt with Innovating a Bright Future, where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technology driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. Today is a good day. It's a great day. It's a long episode, but it's an amazing episode because finally, finally we get to talk about agriculture. Agriculture as a sector is one of the highest emitting sectors of not only carbon dioxide, but other greenhouse gases like methane and nitrous oxide because of the biological process involved with our current method of food production. These other gases like methane and nitrous oxide are much, much worse for the climate. So today I'm talking to Andre De Rosa, the CEO of Lamplighter Energy and an expert in the field of new age agriculture. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome, Andre De Rosa. You're the CEO of Lamplighter Energy. You're also involved with farming naturally and pure current. And you have decades of experience in a variety of mediums related to sustainability and climate mitigation. You've worked on a ton of renewable energy projects and you've poured a bunch of time into hydrogen projects and re-engineering the field of agriculture as we know it so that it better aligns with the climate goals that we have now and the ever-changing human needs of the world. So what else can you tell me about yourself and your experience in these fields? Thanks for having me. The team is, is really excited to share the work we've been doing. But yeah, the last two decades um, really closely focused on addressing climate change. Back then was called global warming and and now we call it the inevitable impacts. Transitioned a little bit from what I would say is trying to prevent the climate from changing now to responding to the climate having changed. I hadn't really thought of that before, but yeah, we've kind of seen a shift. And I think that goes along with the increased engagement from kind of the public in seeing that these impacts are happening. So now we like we need to start now so that we can work on it and try to mitigate it as much as possible because it already is changing, right? It's already changing. I mean, uh, a lot of what we reference is anecdotal. It's our experiences. Um, we rely on the scientists to come in with the hard science. But I'll share an anecdotal story. One of the things I hope we'll talk about today is our solar greenhouses. We work with farmers all around and, and with utilities to implement them. There was a community this past May saw 22% crop losses in May. And it was from this very unfamiliar climate event. It was a weather event that occurred for about 20 minutes where these golf ball pieces of ice fell out of the sky and damaged their crops, wiping them out right after them emerging from the ground about four weeks in. Now, you and I know that as hail. In this community, there was no language for that because they never had hail. We're talking about a very long-standing agricultural community in a region where hail never occurred, and now they have hail. Yeah, really what we're trying to do is come to the table with solutions to resolve these impacts so that we don't have 22% crop losses in 20 minutes during May. 
Uh, just to clarify for listeners, you are based in Hawaii. So I'm just wondering where was, where did this event occur that this community experienced hail for the first time and resulted in a fifth of their crops just disappearing? Uh, I was South Central South Korea, which is not unfamiliar with icing, not unfamiliar with cold and snow. But for this community, farmers, they had never experienced hail. And these are generations of farmers. I mean, that would be a shock. I mean, even to get to never experience hail and then just get the little pebble sized hail would be one thing. But to have a first experience with hail being golf ball sized balls of ice raining down from the sky is kind of a shock to the system, I'm sure, as they found out. We're going to discuss a lot on new age agriculture. Today, we're going to talk about your solar greenhouses and how farming naturally and lamplighter energy are working to progress the field of agriculture. But before we get into that, I want to step back and look at how we got to the state of the agriculture sector that we are in now. How has agriculture evolved over time? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And I think there's two tracks on that thought that you really have to focus on. And one is that to a certain degree, agriculture hasn't changed. Uh, globally, when we look at agriculture, we're looking at smallholder farms following traditional practices that are delivering food to their community. What I see more and more as I travel the world doing projects and meeting with people is a lot of times that is the solution that people see to climate change as far as agriculture is the ability to feed ourselves. You know, your post Dust Bowl, if I think about one of my favorite writers and you read the book, The Grapes of Wrath, you know, it's a really great story, but it's a, it's a wonderful depiction of what happened during the, the Dust Bowl and the mechanization of agriculture in the United States. And a lot of communities and cultures share that story. Farming Naturally is an agri-tech company, so you know, we don't shy away from technology and we don't shy away from mechanization to be sure. But there are a lot of examples of what has happened then over the last hundred years that have taken us away from farming practices that connect us with our food. And I think in the end, if you're really going to respond to climate change, if you're really going to build resilient food systems, if you're going to feed, if it's going to be nine or 10 billion people that comes on this planet, it's going to come from connecting with our food. And so there is an intersection that we're coming up to, I say in the next five to seven years, I'm not a futurist, but from the trends that I see, where the historic small farm practices are meeting the large farm industrial agriculture sector and coming together to resolve a lot of these problems. Okay, so that's fascinating. We started at a point before mechanization and industrialization at a point where small farms would feed basically themselves and the community around them if they could afford to. Then we moved into this space of giant mega farms, industrialized farms that are trying to provide food to everyone and trying to make a business model out of that. And now that we're seeing more impacts of climate change, you figure we're kind of going to transition back to the small scale farming, but still with a bit of the mechanization and the technology. I think what you're going to need is a blend. Small scale farms 
in and of themselves are not the solution. As we saw in the pandemic, small-scale farms, localized farms, farms near to communities were a solution because they helped to resolve a lot of the supply chain challenges that we have. The issue we get into with just focusing on community, small, is when one area experiences a, if it's a natural disaster or whatever event it is that prevents that community from feeding itself, it's the reliance on larger scale food systems. Now, that could be an inner country resolution. So a drought in California can still produce food in other states. It could be a globalization solution. So I'm not against large-scale farming per se. We have to consider the cost of food, the ability to deliver that to every community at an affordable price. And you know, we're not just talking food by calories. We're talking delivering nutrients to people, what builds us as a person. And larger-scale farming does help to respond to that. When you need to move tons of food, you don't do that at the community scale. So there is a blend of the two. Where I see the blend coming together is more and more, especially financial solutions that are giving smaller farms, let's say the under 40 acre farms, access to more technology, which helps them have a better yield, a better cost per product. So they're competitive in the market space, more affordable labor, better uses of inputs, fertilizers, resources, and then larger farms where they are moving to use more localized solutions. So they're looking at indigenous fertilizer methods. You know, we've seen last year and we're seeing going into this year, fertilizer prices are just skyrocketing beyond belief. And a lot of the work that Farming Naturally is working on now is delivering fertilizer at an affordable rate to these larger farmers. And, you know, we're seeing corporate farms buying IMOs, buying micronutrients, because they both want an affordable solution that's not tied to oil and gas markets, but also they're realizing that the food that they're growing needs to not just have the color and taste, but the nutrients. And that comes from properly feeding our plants. Farming is an exercise in pulling nutrients out of the ground. And so we have to remember the other half of the exercise is putting those nutrients back in. Okay. I just wanted to do a kind of quick, kind of not quick side note here to talk about fertilizer. Fertilizer is something you probably don't think about too much when you think about climate change, or anything else really. It's kind of just in the background, it does its thing, it makes plants grow fast. The problem is, fertilizer actually has a very large climate impact. As the second most commonly used man-made chemical in the world, ammonia, which is a large portion of what fertilizer is made of, requires a ton of energy to generate, obviously that energy has to come from somewhere. As it is now, the temperatures and high pressures that are required to produce ammonia are reliant on fossil fuels, and that alone accounts for almost 2% of total global emissions. There is another thing though. It costs a ton of energy to make ammonia. But because we don't have the right systems in place to maximize our fertilizer use, when we use fertilizer, a ton of it is washed away by rains, or it is never absorbed by plants because there's simply too much of it. When fertilizer is swept into the larger ecosystem, it can have detrimental effects on the ecological balance of an area. It makes certain plants grow at accelerated rates, and those certain plants can and will take over entire ecosystems if they're given the chance. And then, the last thing is, 
whatever is left over of that fertilizer to decompose gets turned into nitrous oxide, which if you listen to our episode with Olia Irzak, you know is way, way worse for the climate than carbon dioxide. So alright, that was a big section on fertilizer, but it's all to emphasize that Andre's greenhouses that allow for much more control over inputs and can reduce the need for fertilizer by 80 to 90% have a very meaningful impact on the climate. We've seen a lot of changes, obviously, over the last decade due to climate change and the differences in geography that we're seeing. We've also seen some pretty drastic changes in the last two years due to COVID. So my next question is related to the adaptability of the agriculture sector. How willing and ready is it to make changes to adapt to the new needs of the food sector? And how is it adapting to climate change? Is the sector pretty good at making those changes? Or is it one of those sectors that's really slow to keep up? Let's break that down a little bit. Because when we say sector, you're considering a lot of different influencers into an industry. And, you know, agriculture is arguably one of our largest industries, and it's what we rely on after water. From a farm standpoint, I don't always like the characterization that people have of farmers, that they're traditional, that they are set in their ways. In my experience, and I grew up in an agricultural community, and so I've been tied to farms for the majority of my life. Farmers are the smartest people. They're often the most innovative. When you see the ability to be inventive and to come to the table with solutions, look to your farmers, look to agriculture. And that's the base of people that are really changing things. And so when you do that, there is a high level of adoption. There's always a level of risk adverse. No one wants to bet, let's say the family farm or the corporate farm, on completely changing everything. The conservative nature of a farm would be, that's a great concept. Let's do 10% of that. Or let's see one member of our community do that in our cooperative. If that's working, then we'll expand on that. So what are the other influences that are having a difficult time making change? One is policymakers. And this is not to the negative of policymakers. We have to support them and educate them. But Congress isn't looking forward and saying 20 years ago, digital currencies are coming. We need to put laws in place now. Instead, we have Bitcoin, we have Ethereum, you know, we have the whole blockchain construct. And now, you know, we're looking at legislation coming out. So it's the same thing in agriculture is spending the time educating and being tied to your legislators so that they are passing laws and the policy in the FDA is matching where the farmers want to be. I would say the laggard in the agricultural space is the finance market. And I speak to that as, you know, a reformed banker. Like I started my career in finance. The, the financial market, although they understand the need, they haven't fully assessed out the risk. And what's very difficult is they haven't gotten the marketing in place to reach the farmer. So what makes a large scale corporate farm very successful? is they have a very affordable cost of funds. There is a CFO and very likely a capital markets team. There is a finance team that speaks bank speak and can go to Wall Street and get the access to funds that they need. It's a very small subset of the industry. The bulk of farmers 
are not gaining access to capital. And there's a disparity. And that's a little bit of where Lamplighter steps in in our partnership with Farming Naturally is to come in and say, look, you want to deploy, let's say, one acre or five acres of controlled environment growing. So inside greenhouse growing. And if you build a proper greenhouse, you know, think of an English style greenhouse, not a hoop wrapped in plastic, but a proper greenhouse that's got thermal controls and sensors, you're a million, million plus per acre. Now the economics are there. If you can access that capital, your returns skyrocket while your inputs decline. So the primary inputs in agriculture, labor, you have typically eight to 10 people working an outdoor acreage of a farm on an indoor controlled environment, there's two. Water, water typically goes down by 82%. In a lot of cases where water capture and the controlled environment, the temperature controls are in place, it's going down closer to 90%. And then inputs, the ability to control your fertilizer use is dropping it really on par with your water use. Because a lot of times that's the water is the delivery method now in a controlled environment for the fertilizer. When you can control all that inputs, your costs are declining, but your yield increases. And we're not talking about a 20% increase in yield. We're saying three to eight X. Now that variance is really based off the type of crop. Cucumbers are going to do an eight X return. Other crops will do a lower return. For a farm that sees that economic advantage, farmers are smart people. They know their numbers. They see that advantage. But if they don't have access to that capital, how do they build that controlled environment greenhouse and all that support and make that transition to then see that return? So that's where Lamplighter will step in and will build a system for the farmer using our kind of business processes and methodologies to recover our investment. We'll put up a solar greenhouse. So this is a greenhouse. It's not agrovoltaics. This is a transparent panel. So it has about 42% light transparency. Uh, and it allows enough light to grow the crops based off the latitude. And we're able to partner with the utility to sell that electricity. And remember, most utilities, I would venture to say all utilities in, in, in my experience, are really the lead of the economic development of their community. And the reason is affordable, reliable power is what drives economic growth. And so if a utility can see that, hey, if a farmer moves indoors, they're going to increase their electrical use. And if we can support them by purchasing power from that output, there's a relationship there where both parties benefit. And then that's something that we can bring Wall Street behind to finance. There's a lot of opportunity here and the farmers, the people who are on the ground who would be implementing this are ready and willing to do it. There's a lot of things in their way, but they're on the way to making that transition. They're willing to make that transition. They aren't that stereotypical conservative mindset of things have to be the way that they have been in the past. And I mean, the incentive is clear with those kind of numbers, three to eight X return with 90% reduction in inputs. I mean, you can't really argue with those numbers. So obviously, they're going to be ready to make that change. We just have to make it accessible to them, which is exactly what you're working on. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I think you look at the history of renewable energy and the story remains the same. Is the adoption of wind power, the farmers were the first to adopt it. They were agreeing to give us their land to put up large scale wind turbines and co-locate. You know, we've got corn and we've got cows right next to us and next to, on wind turbine land. 
And it was really working with the utilities and working with financers and debt providers to realize those projects. And then the same thing with solar is in balancing the play of deploying solar on ag land and now doing it together in sort of this condo model where the farmer benefits, the solar benefits, and we can locate together to do so. So farmers have always been at the cutting edge. It's really working to bring in the financers and the utilities. Yeah, I can I can see that for sure. So when we look at the agriculture sector as it is now, we've kind of discussed what it needs to do. I mean, needs to feed 8 billion people right now. In the coming years, it'll be 9, 10, 11 billion people. I could have asked, is it effective at doing that? But I mean, we can make it work, obviously. But I guess the better question is, is it efficient at doing that? As it is now, is our agricultural sector capable of satisfying these needs that we're going to see in the coming years in a way that is not only effective, but also efficient? So the, the initial answer is yes. I would start with look at food waste. You know, we are producing more than enough food to feed at 9 and 10 billion people. The challenges come in food waste. Now, who's to blame for that? that that's a very big concern. There's a number of New York City restaurateurs that during the pandemic really showed this, where farms and wholesalers that were selling to restaurants couldn't retool themselves to reach the consumer when the restaurants were shut down in New York City. Some great chefs that said, there's a solution here because I'm getting top crops delivered to my restaurant that is closed and I can get that to consumers. And so the, the restaurant was able to retool to help people in that sense. And I think what's happening now is farms are realizing that they as well could be solving that problem. One is really addressing supply chain. The second avenue of that is then also addressing the impacts of climate. Just like we see hail events, increased heat, changes in rain events in, in the U.S., we're seeing in Madagascar, in the south of Madagascar, massive famine, people eating dirt. This is a well-established island, a strong historic agrarian economy that's seeing this impact that doesn't have to. With a little bit of technology, could resolve this issue. So as Madagascar transitions to a renewable economy, so where they get the source of energy from solar, they can also then solve this food and what is becoming, and we see it, you know, it's a common event. Droughts happen everywhere. We see it happen here in the U.S. on a regular event. It, it's just that it's becoming worse. So planning for it and putting in the solutions to help the farmers now is a financial mechanism. It's putting the dollars there to help those farmers. It's putting the dollars there to help the supply chain be able to redirect to grocery stores or consumers when restaurants can't be served. I would say address the food waste and be more aggressive on the deployment of technology and the financing of that to be able to give the farmers the tools to feed the people. So just like anything, just like renewable energy, for example, the solutions are there, the technology is there. What's lagging behind is the economics and the policies and the things that are holding all of that back. So if we can get that pushed forward, we can start seeing some real solutions to these problems. 
Yeah. And, and look, it's, we're not pointing at the policymakers. We're not pointing at Wall Street as the fault. I, you know, we point to the community. Consumers need to realize that they can't just look at the grocery store shelf and assume that that's always full. What consumers should do, they should become responsible and they should work with their banks. Farmers, agriculture providers should work with their banks. Wall Street should become closer with the local banks so that these groups can lend the money. They can support the initiatives, the companies, the technologies, not just ourselves, that are trying to implement these solutions. And the same thing goes from consumers and farmers partnering together to affect policy. You know, I, I live in Hawaii. You know, we're very close with our farmers here because obviously they're important to us and food is part of our culture. There are great policies that happen, but it's when the consumers and the farmers come together, the stakeholders come together and they meet with the policymakers, they meet with the government and say, this is what we want, is when we get really good policy and really good ag support. And I think that's what's important. People just need to take responsibility and you'll see the solutions starting to come out. So let's take a step into what you're working on and some of the solutions that you're proposing to these issues. I mean, we've already touched on very briefly, I guess, your solar greenhouses. Do you want to go a little bit deeper into what a solar greenhouse as Lamplighter envisions it actually is and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. You know, since 2008, so we're going on 14 years now. 2008 was the first time we ever put solar panels on the roof of a greenhouse. Now, that was a retrofit. So we took a steel-framed greenhouse and we put a dual glass panel. Most people think of a solar panel, it's got a lot of black squares on it and, you know, a plastic front sheet and a and an opaque back sheet. No light goes through. It's shaded. Yeah, that's how I think of solar panels. <laughs> exactly. What's interesting is, you know, a number of years ago, before I even got into the solar business, there were manufacturers that effectively took two automotive windshields and sandwiched them together and in between put in those solar cells with the idea that that gives the solar a better thermal control and temperature on the cell panel, on the, the actual solar cell itself, is what you're trying to control for the best efficiency of the panel. And you think about your car's windshield, it may get hot in your car in the summertime, but that windshield is treated and operates in a way where it's actually actively trying to reduce the temperature gain in the car, not just with tint, but in the, in the structure of the glass. So when you think about that, it was, it was a great technology. Now, it's a little bit more expensive to get this, but you get better power output. And what's important is now if the solar cells are spaced well on the panel, you can control the amount of light that comes through. So here in Hawaii, where we're closer to the equator, we're in the tropics, you know, any tropical amount, we would put more of those cells in the panel to reduce the light. And you see it in the agriculture here. People are shading their crops to help prevent tip burn, to help the crops grow. And so if you were to use the panels in this way, you achieve that. Now, in northern climates, like say in Mongolia, where we did a project, there is a greater spacing in the panel itself. And because you're at a higher latitude, you're dealing with snow loads, you want to ensure that year round you have enough proper light that comes through. So a lot of what Lamplighter does is we will build the greenhouse for free for the farmer. We build what we call, you know, a 50-year greenhouse. We're building a building that you can grow in for 50 years. We only work with panels and structures that are rated for that time. 
And then we try to bring in the base level of technology that you need to operate that greenhouse along with the installation. And that depends on the economics of the project, what the farmer wants to grow, and and how they want to grow. Whether you're using ground sheets, temperature control systems, humidity control systems, desalinizations, there's passive and active systems. Desalinization, I, I was actually surprised by this recently about, I was in an area, very strong ag region, where they asked about desalinization. And I said, are you kidding me? You're, you're nowhere near the ocean. You're, you're many, many miles away. Why do you need desalinization? Well, apparently, the rainfall patterns changing, less water is soaking into the water table. And so now the ground salinity that normally gets rinsed as part of the process, they're pumping up more water with salt in it. They're seeing crop losses, or in some cases, it's initially just seeing reduced production values because of that higher salt. And that just ends up in a a shorter grow season on that crop. One way, you know, we work with University of California at Riverside, their Oasis group, and they have wonderful tech to work on salt water tolerant plants, which is great. And that's important. But another aspect of it is just to put in a passive desal system to be able to still use that water and not affect the plant and get that longer growth cycle. So we try to work with farmers to identify that that special mix. The benefits obviously are clear to the farmer. They don't have to come to the table with all their money. And instead, we get the air rights to all that sun that we then sell to the utility to pay for that installation. That's fascinating. So you're providing a place for these farmers to grow indoors in a more efficient and cost-effective way and all that you're getting in return is the energy from the solar panels that you're selling back to the utility? That's all we need. We're Lamplighter is a renewable energy company. Our sole focus is deploying carbon neutral renewable energy at scale. The more we can partner with those financers, the more farmers we can reach. We actually have a larger list of farmers than we have financers that kind of inverse Uh, occurs every now and then where people have really wanted to adopt the technology. But, you know, we're not here to replace the farmer. We're here to bring them solutions to make their job easier, to make adapting to climate change easier. And for us, you know, we're happy doing what we do, which is uh, solar and wind projects. Wow, that's incredible. I'm just curious about the actual panels of this greenhouse that you guys are building you're able to put the photovoltaic cells directly between those two panes of glass and it works just the same as it would on a typical solar panel? Actually better. That's the amazing thing. I'll I'll give you a technical term. It's called the heat coefficient. Ooh, a technical term. Editing Avery's favorite thing. So from what I understand, the heat coefficient is the reduction in power that a panel can generate for each degree of temperature rise. The best way to illustrate this is with an example. So say that your solar panel works best at 30 degrees Celsius. As always, I'm making all of these numbers up. They aren't real numbers and they aren't realistic in any way. But if your panel operates best at 30 degrees and say the coefficient of the panel is 1% per degree, then at 33 degrees, the panel would produce 97% of what it would be producing in ideal conditions. At 40 degrees, you're getting 90% of the maximum power output, and so on. The more you know. 
Now take a listen to how Lamplighter is maximizing the solar panel coefficient by using temperature control in their greenhouses. What we were chatting about earlier is as it gets too hot, the silica in the panel does not function as well to make electricity. The performance really starts to decline. You can imagine if I sandwich those very high-tech solar cells in between two pieces of plastic and I frame that in aluminum, there's no thermal control. It's really whatever the heat changes is going to affect that panel. Now, instead, if I put those two pieces of glass together, that glass instead of plastic can provide sort of a layer of temperature control, not just insulation, but it's a little bit more active in that sense. Now the panel performs better. You know, we, we've done a number of solar shade houses. So these are people that we don't want a full, we don't want to transition to inside growing environments. We want just the shade house. So think no walls. The actual inside growing environments help the farmers more and help us more because when we can then turn around and control the indoor temperature, ensuring that on a hot day, it doesn't go above, say, 86, and on a cold day, it doesn't go below 58, 62, controlling the temperature inside the greenhouse, well, what does that do for the solar cell? Now, for everyone listening who isn't in the U.S. and doesn't have the temperature conversion imprinted on your brain, that's the same as saying keeping the panel temperature between 15 and 30 degrees Celsius. Good growing conditions. The backside of the solar cell, even though it may be hot outside on one side, has a controlled temperature. So again, I'm increasing production when it's needed most. So call it a symbiotic relationship. It really benefits both the farmer and the solar producer. Yeah, I like that. I like that symbiotic relationship. I was just thinking like, this is benefiting everyone in this transaction. So how long have you guys been working on this? I mean, you said it first happened in 2008, but how long since you actually started putting them in the ground and getting farmers into this technology? And how close are these to being 100% ready to go? Or are they already 100% ready to go? Yeah, we're 100% ready to go at this point. We're beyond 100%. We're, we're already sort of in the deployment stage. So we did the first project in 2008. It's a very slow growth. You track it, you watch it, you, you make changes. The initial lesson that we learned is the type of greenhouse actually varies based off the environment that the farmer's in and the crops that they're trying to grow. So we, we have eight different styles of greenhouses that we build to, to help meet those needs of the local farmer. There are three that are really just preferred because when a farmer moves to the full controlled environment, they get the greatest amount of benefit. So those three tend to be really latitude dependent. And it's just sort of the slope of the glass to ensure wintertime grow environments. More recently, 2018, 2019, Tom Soto from Los Angeles joined our board of directors. Tom is a guy, he's from the finance world. He was the first person to start a green infrastructure fund. He's often advising presidents when they're transitioning in very high level guy. And I love Tom because he gives very practical advice. And when he gives advice, it's like, I'm just going to tell you this one thing. And Tom said, you guys are doing great. You're building one greenhouse for this farmer. And then you're building one greenhouse for this farmer. He goes, what I would like you to consider is to stop doing that. 
for me is hearsay, right? Because I'm like, oh my God, when we build this, the impact we have on the farmer, when we go back and visit our farmers, the camaraderie we have, the relationships we have are so strong because it's just a great impact. He says, no, you're going about it wrong. You've got to stop building one greenhouse at a time and you've got to scale this in portfolios. So this is where we retooled and we said, okay, where are the areas with greatest need? Areas like, you know, Malta, where it's an island community, Hawaii, it's an island community where you're dominantly relying on imports of food, you're transitioning to renewable energy, what we offer makes sense. Markets like California, other markets in the US, where they're dealing with climate change. And how can we then first attract the farmers? So build a list of farmers that want to transition this, and then go to the utility and say, look, we're going to help you develop economically this way. In every case, the mayor comes on board, the utility comes on board, and then it's a matter of going to the financers and getting them to agree to back the assets. That's where we're at, really. I mean, we continue to build these, we continue to move, but to go at scale, we're no longer deploying you know, millions of dollars. Now we're looking for financers to back us with hundreds of millions of dollars on an annual basis to try to reach as many farmers as possible. It's very exciting to be at this point. It wasn't easy. This is not an overnight success. You know, this is many, many years of works and iterations of what we've been through. Uh, but to be at this point is very exciting. I bet it would be. Yeah, that sounds awesome. How do you envision the future of agriculture? How much are we going to have to restructure the system? And how is that, how big of an impact is this going to have in the future? I think there's a lot of different technology. So indoor growing is not the end-all be-all solution. It is one solution for a certain set of farmers that are growing a certain set of crops. You know, I've yet to see, my wife is from Japan, so we spend part of our time there. And I've yet to see people growing rice indoors. Now, rice is a staple of our diet in Hawaii and Japan. And my friends on the mainland U.S. tease me and I remind them that rice is a staple of their morning breakfast because it's in 90% of the cereals that they eat. And that's still an outdoor crop. So there will be different technologies for corn, for wheat, for rice. You know, we, we will see those changes. There's going to be changes that apply to animal husbandry. Greenhouses do not help grow bigger, fatter, better cows. You know, like that's, that's still a, a separate issue. Saying that this is one aspect of it, and we're sort of making the impact where we can in the space that we're in. I love it when we build a wind farm. Uh, we built one in Oklahoma, and you see the cows line up shoulder to shoulder, and they slowly walk uh, west to east every day because they stay in the shade of the tower of the wind turbine. Absolutely hilarious. I'm excited. I, I think there's a lot of tech coming into the space. I think the outdoor environment, you're going to see more mechanization than you are in the indoor environment. The indoor environment mechanization, the technology that we're deploying is really around data and self-managed systems, water, temperature, humidity, oxygen, carbon levels, and not 100% focused on harvest and crop management because you're already cutting your labor by up to 80%. In most cases, people are cutting north of, of 68% when they move into an indoor grow environment. So mechanization is their number one focus. 
Whereas growing outdoors, cutting your labor is important. And so I think more and more mechanization will happen. More robots will be deployed outdoors than indoors. And we'll still see some some happen indoors. I think that's a great place to wrap up kind of the bigger questions. I have a couple of shorter questions that I want you to answer as fast as you can if you have the time for it. Fire away. All righty. The first question that I have is, you're obviously involved in all of these industries, renewable energy, hydrogen, which we didn't really talk about, but you're involved in hydrogen too, indoor agriculture, advanced agriculture. What industry would you say is the most important to focus on if we're just looking at reducing emissions? I I wouldn't focus on an industry. I would focus on a person. If you want to focus on reduction of plastics in ocean, it's, it's a larger picture of the issues in, in taking care of our environment. It, it all comes down to personal responsibility. How much plastic do we consume? Are we thoughtful about that? And how do we use it? it the same things related to our carbon footprint. And can I take a trip by walking or can I adjust my lifestyle in a way to reduce my own personal emissions? Personal responsibility begins to then grow. I don't mean to tell everyone not to use light bulbs and the bike to work and everywhere they go and to stop flying. But when you become aware at that level and you start making those impacts, people next to you see that. And they then make their own decision. Could I do the same thing? And that begins to grow. And there's an awareness level that we need to stop emitting. All right. I'm not going to dwell here too long because I've talked about it on the podcast before. And I want to emphasize, I don't disagree with Andre at all. He makes some very good points, and I especially like how he showed how awareness and responsibility can snowball into action. As you may know, I think that it is much more meaningful to devote your time to systemic change, campaigning for better legislation, devoting your full-time job to climate, implementing renewable energy in your community. I think that's much more meaningful than to switch off the lights whenever you're not in a room, and try to save water, and that type of thing. And that's simply because when you work on the bigger picture, the little things will fall into place. Of course, everyone should be recycling and composting and avoiding using their car wherever they can. What I've said before and what I want to continue to emphasize is that I think it's important that when you're looking at personal responsibility, you don't let the focus on yourself and your own carbon footprint prevent you from working on projects at scale. For a real black and white contrast here, don't miss an opportunity to put solar panels on your city hall because you don't want to drive your car to get there. That's kind of what I'm saying. It's still important. On an industry scale, there's so many aspects we need to deal with. You know, Transportation, agriculture have huge impacts in the energy and water space, and we need to focus on reducing that impact. But as we do that, then we look at stranded methane, basically the trash that you throw out. What do you do with your waste? And are you capturing and processing in a way that prevents methane? Because methane's 10 times worse than carbon. And how can we control that? So it's all going to come down to each one of us choosing to be personally responsible. Great answer. Uh, Following up on that with the whole personal responsibility field and that perspective on how we can mitigate climate change and solve these problems. I'm curious about your views on things like being vegetarian. Like, is that an effective way? Obviously, 
your solar greenhouses aren't growing cows. So just what are your views on being vegetarian? Is that an effective way to mitigate emissions? You ask wonderful questions, and I'm and I'm sorry I'm not rapid fire in my answer. Vegetarian veganism, I I think those are are wonderful practices, and yes, they have a direct measurable impact on it. I really like steak. Now there are periods in my life where I practice vegetarianism, and that's a a health decision. I'm an American. I live in America. Meat at every meal of the day is de facto. It's maybe not what the Food and Drug Administration recommends. But it's a part of our society. When I look at my grandparents, they consumed meat three times a week. So you went from three meals a week that had meat in it to 21 meals a week. Now, that's, that's something that we sort of we're so used to consuming so much meat that we forget we're consuming so much and that there was a time where we didn't consume that much meat. And it's not just portion sizes, but it's frequency. And beginning to be aware of that and that personal responsibility to say, if I am going to eat meat, that how can I be better about my impact on the climate? Well, do you need to eat the volume that you eat? What I find personal benefit is know your farmer. You know, it's kind of a a phrase that's used a lot here in Hawaii, but knowing your farmer tends to have better tasting food. I know the guy that grows the chickens that I eat. And that's the level of personal responsibility I think is important. So it's an effective way. We don't have to maybe shut it down immediately, but it's something to definitely consider when we're looking at trying to reduce emissions. So if you could tell people to do one thing in the field of personal responsibility, thinking about sustainability, carbon emissions, if you could tell people to do one thing, what would it be? Awareness sounds cliche, but awareness is what, what changed me, what, what helped me really understand the impact that I was having personally. And so the one thing I would do is, is do a self-audit. Get a sheet of paper, you know, grab a piece of paper out of your printer at the office, put it in your pocket. I promise your boss will let you do this. Keep a pen on you. And, and everything that you do that could have a carbon impact just write it down. You don't have to know what the carbon impact is. I ate beef. We know that making beef has a carbon impact. I drove a car. I took a flight, you know, on and on and on. I use electricity. I charged my phone. At the end of seven days, look at that sheet of paper and you'll quickly begin to realize awareness. What is the impact that you're having? And what's strange is with awareness, automatically comes action. I don't think people need to stop doing anything. I think people need to have awareness. And with that, your subconscious, your body will naturally begin to make decisions that you'll enjoy more. You'll find a better route. I learned to use the Google Maps where it gives you the eco route. And you know what was really interesting? It was a much more comfortable drive because it, it ensured I had to stop less at lights and that I wasn't you know, going up hills and different things. And now my, you know, theoretically my car is performing better and whatnot, but I have a less carbon footprint. Wow. Strange. And not everyone can do that. But when you're aware, when you do just a quick audit for a week, automatically you're going to start to make better decisions. 
Okay, I'm just going to combine this with my last little side note on responsibility by saying that if you're going to do this audit thing, do it for a week and then don't do it again for at least six months. That's simply because it'll get annoying and time consuming if you're doing it constantly. You don't want to get pulled out of taking action because it's irritating to you. The other reason I don't recommend doing this often is guilt. There are a lot of things out there that you can't control, and if you're always obsessing over how you can fix it, that's just going to weigh you down. So it's a fantastic idea. I really recommend you do it. I'm doing it this week. Find out how many things you're doing that can impact climate change, and then just leave it for six months. Focus on changing things around to be better at it and try to impact climate less. And then when you come back to it six months or a year later, see how much you've improved and work from that. I like that answer. I'm definitely going to start practicing that. So my next question is, what's your favorite part of being a part of Lamplighter and all of these other companies that you're in and being a part of all these fields that you've been working in? The people. In the end, it's, it's the people from farmers in the Midwest that I get to meet side by side and, and hear their life stories and and understand the impact that we're having them and their their family farms to, you know, communities where we were able to bring electricity, you know, part of our, our nonprofit and, and social mission is to bring electricity and utility services to people that don't have that. When you see kids that have electricity at night, it's it's a it's a game changer. That that's cool, but it's it's everyone. When we build a greenhouse for a farmer and I go back and you know meet with them a, a year later and hear about the changes in their business and hear how they've advanced and how much better they're doing, talk to the employees and the ones that just, all of them really love the fact that they can wear shorts and a t-shirt instead of sweating under the hot sun and bending over, they're having a more comfortable work environment and they're making more money because there's more money to go around. I love that. I love the people side of it. I would say the hardest part of this pandemic is just being socially distant, you don't make as many of those connections as you used to. So I'm really excited to get back to that. All right, I got one question left for you. Based on everything you've seen in all of the industries that you've worked in, and looking at the state of the world as it is at large, do you think we can reach the goals that are set out by the IPCC and other organizations like that? Can we still do that? I, I hope so. You know, I hold out hope. I'm, I'm, as we kind of touched on in the beginning of the conversation, I would say my views now are more, we're responding to the impacts of climate. It's sad that between now and when we achieve those goals, that whole ecosystems will die off. Like to me, that that's a concerning that, that people will suffer. I see and talk to communities that are already migrating. You know, these are developed countries where people have to leave their home and move somewhere else because it's, you know, whatever the issue is, flooding or heat or what have you. Dominantly right now, flooding is the issue and, and ocean rise. That's the disheartening part. We'll get there. We just won't get there fast enough. And, and I really wish we would have taken action, you know, decades ago. I wish I knew the concept of scale um, and the impact that scale has decades ago versus just doing one project at a time. Right. But you can't blame yourself for for not knowing that. I mean, we're all learning no, and seeing as it goes. Yeah, you can't. But I, I really would love to see 
a greater impact. And, and I would like to see it happen sooner. We'll, we'll get there. My concern is just we won't get there fast enough. Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. I'm hoping, like as you said, the hope is that we do. I'm hoping that we do. I think we can. I think it's going to take a lot of work. But we just got to keep working on it is what it comes down to. And that's what you're doing. So, of course, I appreciate you and the future generations appreciate the work that you've been doing. Well, thanks, Avery. I, I think in the end, we all want cleaner air, cleaner water, and we all want to make more and better money. And addressing these issues, that's that's the benefit that it brings us. So let's all get on board and, and start moving in that direction. Absolutely. Let's do it. Where can listeners find you and Lamplighter and everything you're involved in to learn a bit more about this? Yeah, so Lamplighter's always been a small kind of insulated company. We have 16 employees. And so we decided last year we're going to be more outward facing and we're starting to build a better website. Lamplighterenergy.com is no longer going to be just a couple of things. We'll have more engagement and, and more material up on the website later this year. People can find me online, LinkedIn, Andre DeRosa, most social media. My, my tag is sailing fast. I was able to get on the social media bag wagon early enough to, to be able to be consistent between Instagram and what have you. And I love to hear people's stories and, and what they're working on. So don't hesitate to reach out. Wonderful. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Andre. It's been great talking to you about this. I've been hoping to find someone to talk to about New Age agriculture for a season and a half now. So it's great to have you on. It's going to be a wonderful episode to listen back to and edit and eventually listen to. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Avery. And best of luck. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's important. What an absolutely incredible episode. I'm so happy we finally got to delve into agriculture a bit more and look at the solutions to one of the largest emitting sectors in the world. I am quite aware that this episode is substantially longer than most of our other episodes, so if you're still here, I'm going to assume that you've enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much for listening all the way through, and hopefully you learned something. I know I learned a ton from this conversation. Another big thanks to Andre for joining me today. It was great having him on. You can find ways to connect with him in the show notes if you so desire. You can find Lamplighter's website there, as well as the rest of our social media. And other than that, we have our email newsletter and our Patreon in the show notes as well. Don't hesitate to check those out and share the show with one person. Your mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandma, sibling, dog. Try to get one more person interested in it. And that's it. Take care of yourself. Stay innovative. I'll see you next week.